And I think a good question for us this evening is why did he come? Why did he take the trouble? Why did he enter our messy world? Please remain standing as we pray. Almighty Heavenly Father, we do pray for your Holy Spirit who is invisible and unseen. We pray that he may open the word of God to us, that we may not hear the words of men, but the words of God. So we do pray that you may meet with us and you may speak to us and you may draw us closer to Christ. We pray this in his name and for his sake. Amen. No doubt you would have noticed that I'm not a Geordie, I'm from South Africa. I promised myself that I wouldn't say anything about the rugby. But it is a great joy to be here with you on this Sunday evening after yesterday afternoon. We're going to have a look at one verse, Luke chapter 19, verse 10. In your program, it's on page 6 the last verse there, page 10, or otherwise in your Bibles, your church Bibles, page 1053. We're just going to look at that one verse, Luke 19 and verse 10. The Lord Jesus is speaking, and he says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Now, at Christmas time, of course, we remember the birth of Christ, called the Incarnation when God became flesh, when God took on human nature. And I think a good question for us this evening is why did he come? Why did he take the trouble? Why did he enter our messy world? And the best way to answer that, I would think, is to find out from Jesus himself as to why he came. And that's what he tells us in this verse. He tells us why he came. He says there, the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Now, before we unpack that one verse, let me just go down one side road before we get onto the freeway. What we have in this verse is one of the most extraordinary miracles in the Bible, that God is not only the creator of the world, but he is a personal God and he is a supernatural God. What an extraordinary thought, that the God of the universe, the God who made all things, should take on human form, should become flesh, in fact, you see, that's one of the greatest miracles. That is the greatest miracle in the Bible. You see the parting of the Red Sea with Moses or the walking on water of Jesus or the feeding of the 5,000. None of those compare to the great miracle, which is that God became flesh, that God took on human form. And that's precisely what we remember at Christmas time. Now, you may say to me, Martin, I'm not so sure that I can believe in the miracles of the Bible. I'm certainly not sure that I can believe that God became flesh. Now, let me just say to you that if you have a problem with miracles, your actual problem is not with miracles. Your actual problem is with your doctrine of God. You see, if you have a small God, then it's going to be difficult to become human flesh. It's quite difficult to pull off the virgin birth or the resurrection if you're a small God. But if you're the God of the Bible, the creator of the universe, who created all the laws of nature, well then of course you can suspend some of those laws of nature for your own purposes. Why? Because you're God. 
You created those laws. Surely you, you have the right, uh, if for your own purposes, you want to suspend those laws. So it's not illogical, it's not unreasonable, it's not irrational or even unscientific to believe in miracles. If your God is the God of the Bible, the creator of the universe, that God suspends his own laws for his own purposes. And that's precisely, of course, what we see in the incarnation, that God became flesh. Well, let's dig into our verse. Do have a look at that verse. Three questions that will help us to understand this verse. The first question is, who is speaking? Well, of course, Jesus is speaking, and he's speaking about himself when he says, the Son of Man came. Now, the obvious implication in that phrase, Son of Man, is that Jesus is speaking about his human nature, that he was a man, that he was 100% human. And as you read the Gospels, and I would really recommend that, that you read through one of the Gospels and find out about Jesus, because there we have the source documents. As you read the Gospels, you find, you find many, many references to the humanity of Christ, that he was hungry, that he was thirsty, that he was tired, that he was distressed, that he wept. But of course, if you were an Orthodox Jew listening to Jesus at that time, a Jew who knew his Old Testament, you would know that Jesus was actually pointing to his deity, because the phrase Son of Man was a phrase used in the Old Testament, and it was used to speak about God. Now, one example, one passage which makes that abundantly clear is Daniel chapter 7, where the Old Testament prophet speaks about the Son of Man. And this is what he says about the Son of Man. Let me read it to you. He says, he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, all nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now, obviously, that's a description of God. I mean, it's only God who has all authority and glory and sovereign power. It's only God who all men will worship. So when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, which he does often in the Gospels, he's speaking about his deity. He's claiming to be God. Now, my dear friends, as you know, know as well as I do, that in our culture, for us to say that Jesus is King or Jesus is God is not very PC at all, is it? Our culture and our world have many twisted views of Jesus. Generally, most people's image of Jesus is a kind of a magnified version of themselves, a magnified image of themselves. It's happened for ages. The Greeks portrayed Jesus as a beardless young man who looked like, uh, like the god Apollo. The Cuban government, evidently many years ago, printed leaflets which had a picture of Jesus with a rifle over his shoulder. During the French and English wars of the 1800s, the English, the English would uh, chant, the Pope may be French, but Jesus is English. Well, they're probably wrong on both counts. <laughs> and then, of course, you have the health and wealth Jesus of the TV evangelists. Or you have the New Age Jesus, according to Oprah. You see, all of us prefer an image of Jesus which is more tolerant, less demanding, a kind of a domesticated Jesus that, that we can manage. A Jesus who doesn't intrude in our lives. You see, one of our problems is that unless we know who Jesus is, unless we know his true identity, we can't properly relate to him. There's that great scene in the movie Notting Hill, which came out many years ago, 
You remember it starred uh, Julia Roberts and Hugh Grant. I think I think Hugh Grant's a nerd, of course, but um, I have two de uh, teenage daughters, so I watch quite a lot of movies with them. And uh, there's a wonderful scene where, where where the character Bernie meets Anna, played by Julia Roberts. And uh, Bernie doesn't know that Anna is a famous Hollywood actress. And the dialogue goes a little bit like this. Bernie says, so tell me, Anna, what do you do? And Anna says, I'm an actress. And Bernie says, I'm in the stock market, though I've done a bit of amateur acting like P.G. Woodhouse, all that. Acting's a pretty tough job, isn't it? I mean, the wages are a scandal, aren't they? Anna says, well, they can be. Bernie says, I know friends from university been in the business longer than you. They're scraping by on eight or nine thousand pounds per year. It's no life. What sort of acting do you do? Anna replies, films mainly. Bernie says, splendid, well done. How's the pay in movies? I mean, the last movie you did, what did you get paid? Anna says, 15 million pounds. Bernie says, right, so that's fairly good. <laughs> you see, he couldn't relate to her properly because he didn't know who she was. Now, you see, it's like that with Jesus. You can't relate properly with Jesus unless you know who he is. And here in verse 10, you'll notice Jesus tells us directly he's the Son of Man, meaning I'm God in the flesh. I'm the one with ultimate authority, ultimate power, ultimate glory, the king, the God of all the universe. Now, of course, there are many people who have claimed to be God. There are many people who have claimed to be the savior of the world. Most of them are quite rightly in hospital beds. If I said to you today, I am the son of man, I'm the son of God, I, I have all, all, all authority and power and glory, you would obviously think that I had a screw loose, that I picked up some bug on the, on the airplane coming over from South Africa. The difference between Jesus and me is that Jesus proved that he was God. You see, he died, and on the third day, God raised him supernaturally from the dead, bodily, historically, objectively. Jesus was raised from the dead. He proved that he was God through the resurrection. Have you ever wondered why the world calendar is divided between B.C. and A.D.? Ever wondered that? Well, because of one man called Jesus, who lived and died, and God raised from the dead. Do you think there would be any remembrance of Jesus if he had only died? Thousands of people were crucified during the Roman Empire. There would have been no remembrance of Jesus if he had died on the cross. No, human history is divided between B.C. and A.D. because of one man called Jesus, who God raised from the dead. So the question, who is speaking, is actually a critical question. Because if Jesus is in fact the king, if he is in fact God, if he is the ultimate judge of all the earth, then I think it would be a smart move for us to listen to him and take notice of him and obey him. Second question that'll help us. First question, who is, who is speaking? Second question is, who is the lost? Well, look at verse, verse 10 again. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. So a good question is, who's the lost? Well, the Bible says all of us, everyone, the entire human race is lost. 
Quite an extraordinary thought, actually, because we don't normally feel lost, do we? We normally use that word when, when we say, I've lost my keys, or I've lost my coat, I've lost my scarf, or we say, uh, man lost at sea, or we say, lost dog. It's a kind of a one-off event, and none of us feel lost in that way. I was back home, we have quite a large church and school uh, campus, and um, I'd been with my wife, and she, she kind of disappeared, and I said to the property manager, I said, Fred, I've... I've lost my wife, Jean. Uh, 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 I don't know if that's good or bad. And uh, Fred, uh, who thinks very quickly, he said, it's good for her, but bad for you. <laughs> um, but we don't feel lost in that way, do we? When Jesus uses the word lost here in this verse, in verse 10, he's really using it in two specific ways. The one way, he's talking about a lost relationship. He's talking about an existential lostness, where we've lost our way, where we've lost the purpose for which we were created. So, so we don't feel as if we're a lost dog or a man lost at sea. No, it's a loss of a relationship. It's a yearning. It's a longing for something. Haven't you discovered when you're listening to your favorite music or looking at your favorite landscape that there's this inexplicable longing in your heart, your soul? You can't explain it. You wish it would never end, this longing. You're looking at this landscape, you're listening to your favorite music, and you wish you could live there forever. And sometimes it's so deep, it's, it's painful. Have you ever wondered what that is? The Bible says it's a longing for eternity. It's a longing for heaven. It's a longing for God. Ecclesiastes says God has set eternity in the hearts of man. Now, that's a profound statement. God has set eternity in the hearts of man. It means that you and I were made for eternity. You and I were made for God. And even if we deny it, there's that inconsolable longing for something more. Now, you may say to me, Martin, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in heaven and hell. I don't believe in the supernatural. I'll never call myself a Methodist or a Muslim or a Hindu or an Anglican. Now, that may well be true, but it is equally true that you'll never escape eternity because it's inside you. It's been placed there by your Creator, whether you believe in Him or not, whether you believe in organized religion or not. We were hardwired for eternity. It's not a matter of what you believe. It's a matter of who you are. Remember that movie, The Matrix? I did tell you I had two teenage daughters, so I watch movies where Morpheus says to Leo, listen carefully because it's quite profound. He says, let me tell you why you are here. It's because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You've felt it your entire life. There's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there like a splinter in your mind driving you mad. End of quote. What's wrong with the world? What's wrong with us? Well, it's you and I were made for eternity. And when we deny it, it's like a splinter in your mind driving you mad. Ecclesiastes says we were made for eternity. We were hardwired for heaven. God has set eternity in their hearts. And when we deny that, when we deny God, 
we're stuck with this feeling of lostness, this longing, this splinter in your mind driving you mad. The second way in which we are lost is not, not only have we lost our way, but we've lost our innocence. The Bible says all have sinned, all, every one of us, you and me, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, we are sinners by nature. We are sinners from birth. Now, let me tell you, no other religion, no other philosophy teaches that, that we are sinners from birth by nature, which means they're not telling us the truth. Jesus said the fruit is corrupt because the tree is corrupt, meaning that we are not sinful because of what we do. No, we are sinful because of what we are. At the heart of sin is not stealing or lying or adultery. Of course those are sins. Those are great sins. But at the heart of sin is our rebellion against our Creator, where we've sought autonomy and independence, where we've said to God, we've stuck our fists into the face of God and said, I don't need you, I don't want you, I will live my life in my own way. I'll make my own rules, I'll make my own happiness, I'll make my own worldview. In fact, I'll be my own God. That's the heart of sin. It's autonomy. It's independence. And the tragedy, my dear friends, is that it always ends in tears, one way or the other. Malcolm Muggeridge described his own sinfulness. He said, this dark little dungeon of my own ego. Can you associate with that? I can. The poet Byron lived, in a, lived a rather immoral life as you may know. He wrote and said, the thorns I have reaped are of the trees I have planted. They have torn me and I bleed. I should have known what fruit would spring from such a seed. End of quote. Perhaps you know exactly what Byron is talking about. You deeply regret some of the lies and the half-truths, perhaps the deceit, the affair, the broken promises, the one-night stand. You wish you could undo it. And now, like Byron, you are reaping the thorns of the trees you planted. You're reaping the fruit of the seed you sowed. You lost. And you know you lost. You may know the author, Douglas Copeland, the postmodern author. I think he understands that he's lost. In one of his books called Life After God, this is what he said, I quote, Now here is my secret. I tell it to you with the openness of heart that I doubt I shall ever achieve again. So I pray that you are in a quiet room as you hear these words. My secret is that I need God, that I'm sick and I can no longer make it alone. I need God to help me give because I no longer seem capable of giving. I need God to help me love as I seem beyond being able to to love, end of quote. You see, I think Douglas Copeland knows that he's lost. He knows that splinter in his mind is a longing for eternity, for heaven, for God. Third and last question, what's the answer? What's the antidote? Well, Jesus tells us in that verse, that verse again, verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. 
The second truth that no other religion or faith will teach you is the doctrine of grace. You see, every single religion, except for Christianity, says that it's our duty to seek after God. So Islam has five pillars, Buddhism has eight steps, Churchianity says, be good, go to church and say your prayers. Even our culture says you have to work for your salvation. No pain, no gain. There's no such thing as a free lunch. You get what you pay for. The early bird gets the worm. You need to earn your salvation. We learn that from nursery school. And then there's a whisper from the gospel that says, I came. I came to seek and save the lost. It's not the healthy who need the doctor, but the sick. So God has taken the initiative. That's the extraordinary thing of the Christian faith. It's not us seeking after God or us running after God. No, God has taken the initiative. God is seeking after us. He sent his son to rescue us from our lostness, our existential lostness to rescue us from our sinfulness and our rebellion and to reconcile us to God, our creator. And he did that by dying on the cross for our sins, to quench the wrath of God. And so forgiveness and reconciliation with God is a gift. You don't work for it. You don't earn it. No, you ask for it. It's a gift. So if you work the whole month and you get paid at the end of the month, that's not grace. No, you worked for it. You earned it. But if you don't work the whole month and you still get your salary, that's grace. You didn't earn it. Well, that's the gospel. It's a gift. It's a gift for broken, lost people like you and me. In the movie, The Last Emperor, there's a young boy who's a... Uh, who's anointed as the last emperor of China. And he lives in luxury. He has thousands of slaves at his command. And one day his brother says to him, what happens when you do wrong? And this young child emperor says, when I do wrong, someone else gets punished. And to demonstrate that, he, he pushes over this priceless porcelain jar and it smashes into a million pieces. And immediately they take a servant outside and beat the servant. In the gospel, that ancient pattern is reversed. When the servant sins, the king is punished, which is what he did on the cross. So to be saved does not depend on what we do. In actual fact, to be saved is when we come to the end of ourselves and we say, oh God, there's nothing I can do. Everything I touch is mired with sin and brokenness. Will you rescue me? Will you save me? Will you have mercy on me? Let me close and ask you this question. What are you going to do with Jesus? Every one of us has to make a decision. We're either for him or against him. You can't sit on the fence. The fence belongs to to the devil. You are either for him or against him. And perhaps tonight you have felt God the Holy Spirit just in a strange way pressing in upon your heart 
It's time to stop ducking and diving. It's time to get serious with God. It's time to deal with the splinter in your mind driving you mad. And the way to get right with God is to turn to him in prayer, to talk to him. And we're going to do that right now. And I'm going to help you to pray a prayer which puts you right with God. So let's bow in prayer together. Let me tell you what the prayer is. This prayer may not be for you. You may not be ready to pray this prayer, and we understand that. But this may be a prayer that you may want to pray, and I'll first tell you what the prayer is. It says, Dear Lord, I don't understand it all, but I don't know that I need you. I know that Christ died on the cross for me. Will you rescue me? Will you make me a Christian? And will you help me to live under your leadership? Now, that prayer may not be for you. You may not be ready to pray that prayer. But perhaps there may be one or two who know that they need to get right with God. And you will want to echo these words just quietly in the back of your head as I say them again. Lord Jesus, I don't understand it all, but I know that I need you. I know that Christ died on the cross for me. Will you rescue me? Will you make me a Christian? And will you help me to live under your leadership? And Father, we thank you that when we turn to you with all our doubts and all our questions, but we turn to you and call on you for mercy, that you hear and you answer. And so we pray that you may work amongst us tonight for Christ's sake. Amen.